Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. dimension beyond that which is known to man it is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity it is the middle ground between light and shadow between science and superstition and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge this is the dimension of imagination it is an area which we call the twilight zone Alright guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema podcast, our Twilight Zone series. Uh, I'm your host Jimbo and I'm joined once again by ADZ. What's up everybody? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening for uh, wherever you are in the world. <laughs> yeah, we always get we always get a little, we always get a little confused of where we're at during we record because Eric's usually just waking up and I've been up for a while. It's, it's always a different time when we record, so... Well, we are now on episode 15. I shot an arrow into the air. Um, don't forget, at some point during this episode, I will be dropping the secret word. Uh, thanks uh, to those of you that have already participated and sent me the email. So just be on the lookout or be on the listen for the secret word. Go ahead, Eric. Take it away. All right. Episode number 15. I shot an arrow into the air. Uh, this episode debuted on January the 15th, 1960, uh, so early in the year. Um, it was directed by Stuart Rosenberg, and the story was by uh, Madeline Champion, and the teleplay or writing credits go to Rod Serling. And I got a little bit of information about uh, featured music here. It's uh, a song entitled And When the Sky Was Opened by Leonard Roseman. And uh, that, that was just an extra tidbit that was added in to the, the main um, information uh, in the title and heading. So go ahead, uh, Jimbo, with the cast. So for the cast, we have Dewey Martin. He plays Officer Corey. Um, Dewey was famous for being in the movie The Thing from Another World. Edward Bynes, or Benz as Colonel Donlan. Um, and Eric, I don't know if you caught this, but he has been in a movie that we have covered on the normal podcast. 
He was in 12 Angry Men. Okay. He was juror number six from that movie. So if you haven't seen that movie, it's a great movie to watch. I, I highly recommend it to everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Ted Otis. Uh, Ted Otis played Pearson. And I think right here I'm going to throw in the secret word. The secret word for this uh, this episode is asteroid. So asteroid is the secret word. Check. Harry Bartell uh, plays Langford. Uh, Leslie Barrett as Brant. Uh, he was Leslie was famous for being in um, Dark Shadows, the TV soap opera from 1968. He played uh, Judge Hanley. So the synopsis for this episode is: After their spacecraft crashes on a barren planet. Three men must find a way to survive with little water and hardly any shelter. So, Eric, let's go ahead and take it away. All right. So, as we open the episode, um, we kind of have, again, um, some stock footage, it looks like, of like a, maybe a rocket launch or something. Uh, I'm not exactly sure where they took this from. Um, but then there's some uh, conversation between... Um, two men, uh, I, I believe this is, is this Langford and Brandt? I, um, I think, I these think are so. the only two guys really mentioned in the episode or that have any dialogue. And so they're coming down to five seconds before launch. And you see again, this stock footage of, you know, people like in a control room and the rocket being launched and stuff. And we find out some information, um, about the particular rocket that was launched and that it basically disappeared. Um, they don't know what happened to it. It's off its trajectory. It's yeah. not on the radar screen or anything. And so these two men, uh, Langford and Brandt, are discussing what could have possibly happened. And it's really kind of unexplainable. Um, so they go along and they, uh, they, they talk back and forth. And uh, they, they discover that their contact was uh, broken. And then it's interesting. I didn't know this. I shot an arrow into the air was a poem. I guess, or something right. like that, I think. And so, I don't remember which one, Lankford or Brandt, whoever it was, he uh, he cites the poem in the dialogue as he lo- looks out this kind of windowish type thing. Jimbo, did you have something? No, no, it says something like, I shot an arrow into the air and where it land, uh, no one cares, or something like that. I can't remember the exact right. poem. Do you remember it? Right. And uh, then I think, do we come to commercial break here? Yeah, this is a the old-fashioned commercial break. I believe so. In the uh, first scene. And then as we open up the second scene, we see uh, not Corey, who, Colonel, um, Colonel Donlin. He's uh, Donlin. writing, yeah, he's writing in like his journal or a captain's log. And he's just describing uh, basically what's happened is that they've crash landed. There's not much left of the aircraft. And you know he's uh, he he says it appears to be that we've landed on an uncharted asteroid, and so he's describing all the you know all of his surroundings and such, and um, he kind of explains a little bit that he thinks that the electrical system went down and that's what maybe caused the crash, and that there were uh, were there eight crew members is that right Jimbo or yeah I think there were eight total I was gonna say I. I... You know, you only you only really see the the three that are alive. Well, there's four alive. One of them's really severely injured, right? And they don't think he's going to make it. And then you see some other bodies on the ground. I I think there was eight or nine. I couldn't really make out exactly. I don't know if they actually said, right? And those guys, obviously, the ones um, there are several that didn't make it. I think there was like three or four that didn't make it. One man is uh, critically injured, and then there are three other guys that uh, seem to be okay. 
and they're having a discussion. And this guy, Corey, oh man, this guy's a real piece of work. Uh, so he, you know, he only cares about himself. <laughs> yeah. And he's telling, uh, the Colonel, like, why are you writing in this journal, man? We're all about to die. We got to get our priorities right. And, you know, there's this instant confrontation between these two guys. Uh, because apparently I guess Corey believes since they've crashed that there are no rules anymore. There's no chain of command. Everything's just sort of tossed out the window for Corey at this point. It's every man for himself. And you can sort of pick up on that theme very early in the uh, in the episode that he is not following the chain of command at all in the most critical time when he needs to do that. Jimbo, did you have something? Right. Well... And I and I think um, something that Corey is starting to realize is, hey, especially the the Colonel Donlin, he's 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 saying, hey, look, we don't we only have a limited limited amount of supplies here. Look around, this is a dusty, barren, uh, no sign of water, no sign of life, nothing. So we need to basically uh, gather our supplies and we need to spread it out over this long period of time because we don't know how long we're going to be here. This may be permanent, uh, but we need to spread this out so we can survive as long as we need to survive. And obviously, Officer Corey uh, has a problem with that because exactly. the colonel is trying to help the one that is critically injured. He's not dead yet, but he's actually you know feeding water. And Corey takes offense to it. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, we have to survive. This guy's not going to make it. You know he's not going to make it. I know he's not going to make it. So why are we wasting our supply of water on this guy when we could use it to further progress our... Uh, you know, time here, maybe make us survive a lot, a lot longer than we than we need to, or than we should, or that we have to. Right. And yeah. so there's a big scuffle going on. Um, you know, the, the the they start fighting. He's like, you know, um, by the time that you know they're fighting over the canteen that they were fight, uh, giving this man uh, some water. Uh, the one, the other gentleman's like, look, Corey, you're not got to worry about it anymore. You know, he's gone. He's he's done. So we don't have to worry about his supply of water anymore. So, Eric, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that that's the main beef. That's the the, the first uh, bone of contention, sort of between uh, the colonel and Corey, is about over the water and treating this man who's about to die. And then after he pass, uh, passes away, um, very shortly, early on in the episode, um, the the next command from the colonel is, "Look, we're going to get these shovels together." And uh, we're going to get a shovel and we're going to bury these bodies uh, somewhere of the guys that didn't make it. And then one of the other guys, I think it might have been Pearson, sort of remarks to Corey like, huh, you want these, basically, in essence, you want these dead guys to help us, you know, dig the hole kind of in jest. Because Corey, I mean, this guy's, I don't know, he <laughs> he's not the, the greatest of guys. And, you know, that becomes very evident uh, very early and you know he just is the guy that wants to go against the group on every decision like if you were stranded on a desert island this guy would you know he would be the guy that wants to do everything against what the group might have voted on so you know it becomes right. a, an issue and I think, of life and death here right and i think an important scene right here is right after the gentleman dies Corey goes for his uh the guy's water canteen and the uh, uh, Pearson, I believe it is, comes up to him and says, look, Corey, you know, he's like, he grabs the canteen. He's like, look, he said, there's three of us that have to survive now. And he says, and if I see you flinching even once, he said, I will kill you. And that kind of sets the tone for what's about to happen here in, 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 later on in this episode. Yeah, definitely. Um, so um, we progress on a little bit. 
And again, there's just there's this infighting between. Um, oh, this is actually where uh, the man passes away. Uh, the first man passes away. They're just infighting now. There's just three of them left, and they basically come up uh, to a decision, or the colonel comes to a decision that they're gonna to scout out the this what they think is an asteroid, uh, and they decide that they're gonna. Uh, scout out the well they have let me back up a little bit they have an overnight they, they like sit around the fire they spend the first night uh, the colonel uh, I think stays back at the camp and the uh, two guys Pearson and Corey they go and they sort of scout out um, the situation to see what they can find you know any water any signs of life any plants or anything they can eat you know it, basically what you would do if you were stranded on a desert island or a planet or whatever Right, but the colonel was very adamant that they stick together. Yep, is very adamant about this. So when they're sitting there talking, he's like, he's like, I told you guys to stick together. Where's Where's Pearson? He's like, hey, he's like, he went east, I went west. Once we got out there, so right then you know you see you see uh, Corey sitting there, man. He is just guzzling the water down, and he you know he's he's basically saying you know uh, where'd you get all the water? You know you only had like a half a water. <laughs> he's like, you sure you didn't see Pearson or anything? He said, I already told you, Colonel. He's like, you know, we went in different directions. So I think the Colonel is kind of a suspect of what happened to Pearson at this moment, especially the way that Dewey ha or Corey has been acting. Yeah, he comes, uh, Corey comes back about six hours later, and you brought up something that was interesting. The Colonel asks the probing question. He says, well, you left with a canteen that was less than half full, and then you come back with a canteen of water that's like three quarters full. So what? And when he's guzzling all that water, that that scene you just referenced, he's like, "Where did all that water come from?" I told you guys to stay together, and it had been like six hours. And Corey claims that uh, he found Pearson dead, and that they got they got separated, right. and that he doesn't. Well, at first he says, "I don't know, I don't know where he's at," and then you know the colonel keeps pressing him, and then he says, "Well." Uh, you know, I found him after the water thing, you know, the canteen thing. He tells him, he tells the colonel, look, uh, I found him and he was already dead. Uh, and then so... Well, he said he was face down. Yeah, yeah. I found him face down. Yeah. Is what he said. And so... So then he actually tells him, you know, hey, you know, it was, he's, he, he was dead. I'm telling you he was dead. He's like, well, where is he? You're going to take him to me. He's like, well, it's about seven or eight miles there. He's like, well, you know, we're going now. He's like, we're not going to wait. He's like... I want to see his body. You're going to take me there, and I want to see for myself what happened. Yeah, and so then the next scene, they're uh, you know they're hiking over mountains and so forth, and the sun's starting to come up because it was night when they left, and you know Corey's complaining, oh I'm so tired, you know I just hiked all this way, I don't want to go back out. So you know Corey in these scenes, he's staggering across the rocks, and then they hike for a while, and eventually they come upon uh, Pearson's um, Pearson's body. After a while, well, there's a couple incidents where Corey like bends down to fake like he's tying his shoe, but he he he's actually like looking for a rock. You can tell he wants to take out the colonel. Right next, he has. Well, uh, the colonel actually has the colonel actually has a weapon drawn on him the entire time because yes. right now he doesn't trust this guy. Yes, that's an important and, point. And Corey's about. getting the idea like, man, I need to I need to take this guy out too. My water's running out. And I know the colonel's got some water over there, you know, and you can tell it's hot. Uh, and you can tell that Corey is man; he's really struggling right now. Yeah, so they get to the, like uh, into this uh, like valley or ravine part of the part of the mountain, and you know 
tensions are high. The the um, Corey says, well, they come to the place where Corey last saw Pearson, and Pearson's body's not there, so obviously he's not dead. Oh, it's important to note too that um, the colonel took Corey's weapon. I think he had a pistol or whatever, and uh, the colonel took his weapon as well. And he has a weapon drawn on him. So they, they hike a little bit further, and then they find Pearson Hughes, you know, basically near death, and he's laying on the ground. And it looks as like he's uh, hiked a certain amount of, a certain little way farther. And when they come up on him, uh, you know, the colonel uh, asks him a series of questions. He gets down, and it looks like Pearson tries to draw something on the ground. He's trying to draw a symbol to try to give them some kind of information. He can barely talk. He's completely parsed. He hasn't had any water. It's super hot. And uh, go ahead, Jimbo. Yeah, he, he, he puts his fingers in the sand, and he draws like this, like two parallel lines, and he draws like some sort of crooked lines in between them, connecting them, and you're like, what is going on? And he kind of points like to the top of this mountain. And the uh, the colonel's like, he's trying to tell me something. I don't know what he's trying to tell me. You know what I mean? So um, he's like, you told me he was dead. Where is he? You know, or did you just steal his water and hide his body? You know, and he's like, well, I thought he was dead. You know, so he didn't. Uh, the, obviously, he never even really checked on his uh, friend. Well, I guess his comrade. I wouldn't call him my friend anymore. He's like, but you know, my tongue was swollen up. It was so hot out here. So basically, he left Pearson to die. So, um, as he's as he goes, then uh, this is where I believe is this where the colonel drops the gun. Yeah, exactly. To go check on him. Yeah, he goes to hike up the the side of the ridge because Pearson, you know, he dies basically shortly after he makes that little symbol in the ground, and then the colonel hikes halfway, you know, up this hill or mountain. He drops his weapon, and of course, Corey seizes on this opportunity to take his weapon, and then they have an exchange. And uh, uh, then Corey ends up shooting the colonel with his own, looks like a rifle type deal. And uh, so the colonel is dead. And Corey is, you know, he, it's uh, one man against the world, basically, at this point now. He's, he's killed off almost his entire crew uh, that crash landed. And then um, after, you know, Corey... What? Well, what I really Sorry, thought, yeah, and uh, no, what I really thought was uh, uncanny about this scene is that when Corey does shoot Colonel Donlin, that he actually shoots right through the canteen. So if he was thinking about taking his water, yeah, the canteen is actually he shot the bullet right through the canteen. I thought how ironic and how great is that? That yeah, uh, he was probably trying to get the colonel's water. So I just wanted to point that out real quick. Yeah, that that was that was. Uh... An interesting thing, I definitely noticed that as well. Like, if you were trying to preserve water, that little bit of water to save your life, well, you certainly uh, canceled that opportunity with shooting through the canteen. So then there's like a, a, a few minutes here of Corey just hiking by himself, and then um, some, well, I guess mid to end narration, not the end narration, but Rod Serling comes in here as he's hiking alone and, uh, you know, gives a description of Corey and really his character personality and uh he gives some insightful words here and then Corey hikes uh for several scenes here for probably over a minute in the episode and then he comes to after hiking for several miles he comes to like a clearing and he here's the big twist Jimbo you want to take away what the big <laughs> twist is 
Yeah, he looks down and he sees a sign that says, uh, what does it say, Nevada uh, State Line or something, and it says eat and, eat and sleep or eat and get gas or something, I can't remember, gas and food or something. Yeah. Uh, so the twist is that they never, ever left Earth. Yeah. That they crashed back down into the Earth's atmosphere and landed in, basically in the middle of probably the Nevada desert somewhere, uh, which is very interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, and and you see the look on uh, Corey's face. He's like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's important to know, right. too, that the, the the object that Pearson was trying to draw in the ground was the power lines that he saw. The, 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 the right. Looked like an H. Yeah. And then we see the, uh, the, the, uh, the Reno, Nevada sign. And then it all hits home to Corey, like, oh, man, like, this was all pointless. I. I fought to save and spare my own life, and I've killed everyone in my crew. And we, you know, we we have we thought we were on an asteroid, but we never left Earth. And it leaves you with that sunken right. feeling. That's what the episode does. It just really like, uh, <laughs> like all Twilight episodes do. You just you, this guy. You you're with Corey. You just can't believe uh, what just happened. It's it's pretty neat. Right. So, so my question to you is: Do you think that um, he will be court-martialed for the deaths of his fellow comrades, or do you think he will connive a way to get out of it? I don't know. I I, th- I actually thought about that question. Um, yeah, I don't know. That, that it doesn't. The the uh, episode kind of leaves you wanting that resolution um, because it it ends uh, shortly thereafter with the end narration, but. I think obviously if this were a real story in real life, of course, there would be ways an investigation would be opened, et cetera, et cetera. Everything would go back to, to Corey. And, uh, yeah. Well, but, but, but also at the time that this was, would there be enough evidence to uh, prosecute him? I think so. I think you know there would have been enough. All he'd have, all, all have to do is bury that gun and bury, go get the canteen with a bullet hole in it and get rid of him. I mean... And then he can say whatever he wants. Hey, there was bandits out here. There was thieves. This is close to Las Vegas, you know. Maybe it was the yeah. uh, mafia. You know what I mean? It's just interesting to think. So, yeah, a couple little things that I found. Um, we're going to go ahead and talk about this before we get into our opinions of this episode. Uh, the 1969 comic book Web of Horror number two contained the seven-page story Breathless by Marv Wolfman and Bernie Wrightson, which was essentially a reworking of this plot. The twist in the comic book version, however, had the astronauts suffocating in their spacesuits because they didn't realize that they were back on Earth. Oh, so they wow. never took their, their thing off, so they suffocated. Um, the title, uh, This title was one that Rod Serling considered for a screenplay that would later air as the uh, Twilight Zone, The Gift, which is um, almost the pilot, so that's later on in 1962. Uh, in the opening scenes in the launch control room, some semi-circular flashing gauges are seen in the back of the control room. They are some of the gauges seen as part of the Krell facility on Altar 4 in Forbidden Planet in 1956. This is only one of four uh, episodes of The Twilight Zone in which Rod Serling uses mid-episode narration. The other three are The Twilight Zone Walking Distance, which we've already covered, uh, Time Enough Alas, which we covered with Burgess Meredith, and then Twilight Zone, uh, Zone, I Sing, The Body Electric, that's later on in 1962, I think season three. Um, Rod Serling was at a party when he was approached by a woman named Madeline Champion, who said, 
you know, what would happen if three guys landed on what they thought was an asteroid and it turned out to be outside of Las Vegas? Sterling was so taken with the proposal that he paid her $500 on the spot and gave her on-screen credit for having suggested the story ideal. It was the only such suggestion that he ever turned into a script for The Twilight Zone. Now that's cool. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, the plot twist of Corey finding the telephone poles and uh, sign reading Reno 97 miles and realizing that he had been on Earth the whole time would later be adapted as the twist ending of Planet of the Apes in 1968 featuring the Statue of Liberty. Uh, like this episode, the initial drafts of the film were written by Rod Sterling, and I think that's pretty cool. I did not know that. I didn't either. Uh, the men all agree that they must be on an asteroid. Uh, space service personnel would never ever consider such an absurd hypothesis as they would know that an asteroid cannot support any kind of atmosphere nor can it have earth-like gravity i'm not a scientist but that's still pretty cool yeah. uh, near the end after Corey has killed colonel donlin Corey is sitting on the ground and drinking from his canteen there is vegetation clearly visible behind Corey. Asteroids do not have vegetation. No, they don't. And at the end, of the, uh, at the end, Corey finds the telephone poles, highway, and three signs. One of the signs is a Nevada State Highway marker that is just a simple rectangle with the state name and highway number on it. Nevada State Highway markers, both in 1959 and present, have a crude map of the state and the highway number on the square upper part of the map. So, Eric, go ahead and tell me your thoughts on this movie and what your takeaways from it. Or sorry, this episode and their takeaways from it. Right, uh, I thought it was a great episode. Uh, one of the things that we've talked before that makes the Twilight Zone so great is uh, they weren't afraid to approach um, difficult or deep topics, topics like uh, morality, life and death, and the afterlife. And this one definitely um, uh, touches on morality. Uh, you're left with the question. Well, uh, is it okay to kill uh, in order to save your own life? That's a philosophical question that uh, people have talked about for down through the ages. And Corey, real Corey, in this episode, really has a survival of the fittest type mentality. Uh, you know, he he here's a quote. He says, "You know, Colonel, this is a jungle where only the tough animals survive, and they don't do it according to the rules." And then he's and here's another quote. He says, "You know, you're in trouble, Colonel." You were looking for morality in the wrong place, and that's the exchange that they have, like on the side of that mountain in, in the in the ravine after they find, found Pearson. And he doesn't want to give a dying man any water to save his life. I mean, you know, this guy is the the ultimate antagonist, and he's going to do whatever it takes to to save his own skin, so to speak. And you're left with a, a lot of those questions: Is it right to kill in order to save your own life? And I just think it's great that all of these episodes are great in their own in their own way. But you know they are they're willing to do that. They're willing to uh, approach those uh, tough topics with great stories behind them. And it just makes it a great episode. Right, and you know you sit there and you start thinking about these episodes, and you're like, okay, what would I have done if I was in this situation? If I was Colonel Donlin, would I have done things differently? Um, I'm hoping I would have the compassion that he had for his, his crew. And then, you know, you see yourself as part of, like, uh, the, the antagonist. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Dewey? Uh, Corey. What's his name? Corey. Yeah, like Corey. And, you know, you start seeing yourself, well, you know, I probably would have done some of the same stuff Corey did. You know, there's that whole moral uh, 
good versus evil, survival, non-survival, sacrifice, love, compassion, uh, but independence, and, and, and that, that you need to, hey, I got to survive too. I got a family too. Um, and you always, you know, I always think about that movie, what was it, Alive, where the airplane crashed, and, you know, they actually had to eat some of their fellow passengers in order to stay alive for a certain amount of time. Now, I don't know what kind of mentality, because I've never been in that position or that predicament, but just to get through, you know, seeing people die and all that, man, I don't know. I can't say what I would and what I wouldn't do because I've never been in that situation. I think that's what makes the Twilight Zone so great is that it puts people in position that you think about, but you've never been in that position for the most part of these episodes. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful thing that Rod Sterling did. Yeah. And it really opens up your imagination and makes you think about, hey, what would I do in this situation? What I wouldn't do? Is it right? Is it wrong? And I think it's a great way of storytelling that he gave us. Yep, absolutely. So there you have it. That is episode, uh, I believe it's number 15. 15. I shot an arrow into the air. 15. And I think that's a wrap on this episode. And Eric, take it away. And cut. <laughs>